Hi there, and welcome to Totally His Running the Race, a show enabling young men and women who want to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Tim Harris, podcasting from EI School of Biblical Training in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for joining. One way the Word of God describes the Christian life is comparing it to running the race. In fact, that's why we call this podcast series Running the Race. And one reason that we have this series is we want to share with you what is involved in living life as a Christian in running the race. Now, one aspect of running the race is that we are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? What does that involve? Well, in today's episode and in the next episode, Art Nuremberg is going to be talking about that. Let me introduce Mr. Nuremberg to you. I I call him that because he was one of my teachers here at the school, and he still is one of the teachers here at EI School of Biblical Training. Well, Mr. Nuremberg was a member of the very first graduating class back in 1974. After he graduated from the school, he was immediately asked to join the teaching staff and has been faithfully teaching here at the school for 45 years now. He's married to his wife, Pam, and they have five adult children who are married and have their own kids as well. As I mentioned earlier, Mr. Nuremberg is going to be talking about what is involved in following the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we listen, let me go ahead and pray and commit the time to the Lord. Father, as we hear your word proclaimed, give us listening hearts. Keep us from distractions. And Father, may we take in this truth and act on it. Be doers of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The subject we want to talk about for the next two weeks is the subject of surrender. Um, we're going to get to that in just a little bit, but we're going to start off with another question. Here's, the, here's an important question for you. As you look forward in your life... What can you be guaranteed of? And we all have a lot of ambitions. We all have a lot of plans for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and, and life. And what is it that I can count on in that future? Now, that's, that should be kind of important to us right at the moment because the circumstances in the last six months have been so ter- uh, tumultuous. Um, the end of our school year here at EI didn't finish the way I thought it would. Um, all of a sudden, and that has never happened in my life, and I've been around for a good while, suddenly there is a situation in which the government tells us that we aren't going to be able to meet together. And all the plans that we had for the spring and the things that I would normally have done suddenly get scrapped and have to be rebuilt and redone. I know a lot of young people who graduated from either high school or college this year. I I think so much about those that graduated from colleges who weren't able to go through the graduation ceremony. Things changed because of circumstances. This is what they anticipated, but it never came to pass. I knew people who had businesses that were going along pretty well, and they never anticipated this kind of a disaster. And then suddenly... Everything was changed, and the business didn't continue, and 
things came to a different end. What is it that I can be sure of in this life? Well, in a sense, there's only two of them. There's only two. The first one is, is the subject of a lot of jokes. What can I count on in life? Well, they say death and taxes, but uh, you could avoid the taxes. You end up in prison if you do, but you can avoid the taxes, but you won't avoid the end of this life. There is a limit. There is a, a beginning and an end to our experience on this earth. That's true for everybody. Uh, we all face that. But what else can we know? What else is it that we can, we can count on as being true? And I, I want to say this to you because in the period that you're alive on this earth, there is only one thing that you could be guaranteed of if you want to involve yourself in this. You can be guaranteed that you can know God. Because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as he paid the price of our sin... We have an opportunity to know God. It's stated in the Word of God this way. He died, that's Jesus Christ died, the just for the unjust, that's us, in order to bring us to God. He's going to bring us to God, bring us into an experience of who God is. Anyone who wants to can take hold of that experience. Every one of us has the potential to really know God. Now a question comes up here. What would that be like? What does it mean? Because we could say here, oh, I know God. I don't know God. You know the Lord. But what does it mean? What does the Bible describe as the inward experience of a person who knows God? What is that like? Well, we can't go very deeply into that, but let me just note a few of them, just some things. In John chapter 7, Jesus is speaking about people coming to him and what could happen if they come to him. And he says this, if any man is thirsty, all right, that's a picture he uses of, of that inward longing of the heart that isn't satisfied, that doesn't, it doesn't seem to be going right. He says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. And then he says this, out, uh, he who comes to me out of his inward being, out of the depths of his being, will flow rivers of water. Now, two things come up in that. He describes an experience in which the heart comes to satisfaction, that the thirstiness of the human heart is actually quenched to a place that life is peaceful and satisfying. Second thing he says is that there will be a river, and this, this satisfaction isn't temporary. There are some things in this earth, in our experience that we have day by day, which can give us a, a momentary lift, a thrill, a, an exuberance, but they don't last. Uh, winning a game, can get, uh, winning a championship even, could lead to a sense of exuberance and happiness, if you would, but... It doesn't last, and it, it, it's obvious in a short period of time that that doesn't have any real bearing on our, our long-term satisfaction. But Jesus says this, that that man will be satisfied, but he'll also have a river of what person will have a river of water coming up from within them. It's a, it's a picture here, a, an experience which continuously satisfies them. Now, we could look at it, but not quite a few others, but I want to look at another passage here, um, and it's found in Matthew chapter 11, pretty well-known passage, and it says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is what The second thing, what's the inward experience? He says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, or weary and are heavy laden. Now, I know that I'm speaking to young people, and that sounds really uh, tough, you know, who weary, worn out. It sounds like something that would happen to old people, people who have already experienced a lot and been beaten up in life. You're young and, and going forward. But here's a fact. In the United States right now, the number one cause of death among young people is accidents. No question about that. But coming up rapidly behind it and and very close to the same number is the number of young people who commit suicide. That's stunning to me. That a person who is, in a sense, has all of their life laid out in front of them would come to a conclusion with the limited experience that, say, teenage years have provided would come to the conclusion that it wasn't worth even going on. And then add to that, not only is the suicide rate higher or high, but here's the other problem. We had a young man who used to live in my neighborhood and he had some difficulties, got on drugs, uh, particular drugs, I don't know what they were, but one morning they found him in his home, dead, dead from a drug overdose. Now, it is hard to say whether he took that overdose and committed suicide because he had given up or whether it was an accident. But the fact was, in order to, to keep the burden of life, the pain of real life, under control, he was constantly using those drugs, and that's of common experience all through this nation. Jesus Christ comes, and he says this, Come to me. All you laboring are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Now, the rest here, I want to note, is that it's a word which doesn't mean so much laying in a hammock. All right? This is a picture of something being in tune and life being organized the way it should be so that everything falls into place. Uh, if you are familiar with engines, it's the difference between an engine which just goes along but is out of tune and coughs and sputters and an engine which has been worked on by a mechanic and, and it's fine-tuned so that when, it, when you turn that key, it fires up and, and rolls well so that it, it travels well, so that it is, it's able to do what it needs to do. And he's, because Jesus isn't calling us to give up on life and sit in a corner and sip tea. He is calling us to a life in which we will be vigorously involved with people around us. And if that's going to be true and we're going to be able to fulfill it, then there has to be this experience of rest. Jesus was a very active man, but he was a man at rest, and he promises that. Now, if that experience is potential of having your satisfaction quenched, your, your satisfaction because your thirst is quenched, and having a sufficiency which comes because 
the Spirit of God enables you from within to meet the the demands of daily living. If you are brought to a place of rest where you could if where you could have everything smoothed out so that life fit together, the question comes, why don't people experience that? And why is it that so seldom, even inside the church, this is experienced? Well, we have to look at that in the and it gets back to this matter of surrender. Well, let's look at it this way. Imagine just for a moment there is a man who is arrested, accused of a crime, a serious crime, goes before the court, and in that court is found guilty. And the judge, looking at his guilt, looking at the seriousness of what he's been accused of, says, I'm going to give you a sentence. He sentences him to life imprisonment. And the man moves into a cell, and there he lives, stuck in that cell, stuck in that prison. He has another friend who believes that his situation has been, that he shouldn't be in prison. And he goes to work for him, and he works with lawyers, and he works with governors, and he finally, after immense amount of effort, finally convinces the governor of the state to grant his friend a pardon. And so he takes that pardon. This isn't the way it would actually happen, but for our picture it will work. And he takes that pardon to the prison, and he presents it there, and they go, the man and the warden, go to the cell, and they unlock the cell. And they say, you are free to go. Nothing the prisoner did brought about his deliverance. That all happened from without. That's important to the picture here because that's all the grace of God. The the opportunity to know God is all by the grace of God. It all comes from without. It doesn't have anything to do with anything we do. That's important. But in order to experience the freedom which was won for him by, this is back to the picture of the man in prison, in order to experience the freedom that was won for him by the efforts of his friend, he has to get up and leave. His friend isn't going to drag him out. The door is unlocked. There is nothing keeping him inside the cell except his own desire to be there. If he doesn't get up and leave, then he'll remain in the cell. And if he gets up and leaves, that isn't a work. It's the grace of the other man that that enabled him to get there. Now, why do we talk about that? Because we need to know that God has made it possible for us to know him. I've spent 50 years of my life telling people that God has made it possible for you to know him. But if you're going to know him, you're going to have to do certain things. And that's what we want to be thinking about in these sessions. Now, I want to go back to this passage in, in Matthew chapter 10. Or excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It says, It's come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It just says, come to him. Right? That's, the Lord was always calling people to himself. The answer to their need was always to come to him. The answer to your need, whether you believe it or not, is to come to the Lord. 
That's why we proclaim him. That's why we tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I tell people about what he did for them. Because 50 years ago, nearly 50 years ago, I came to him. And I found out that all those promises were true. And I found out that he would do exactly what he said he would do. That he would quench thirst. And I had thirst. That he would give that river of living water within that makes you sufficient and keeps you moving the right direction. That he would grant rest. And as a person who had known a great deal of rest, who had known tension and fear a lot of my life, inward, covered up by my external demeanor, but still there, it was a wonderful experience. And that's why I continue to do this today, because it's all out there. He says this, if that's going to take place, after he says that I'll give you rest, he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. This is an interesting picture. A yoke, again, we're not real familiar with farm animals, but anyway, a yoke is a harness which was placed, and this particular kind of harness was placed over the neck of an ox. And it was an ox which would be used to plow and to do different kinds of work, maybe pull a cart, maybe most of the time plowing. It was going to do work. It was going to be controlled. That yoke had extending from it reins which would give the owner, the man who controlled that animal, the ability to direct it. Once an animal was trained, enormous capacity, those were, were valuable animals to have. All right, Jesus says to them, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. What does that mean? Well, it's an interesting one here because and he says, I mean, you're going to learn from me. There is some debate as to whether this is a yoke and Jesus is the one who is holding the reins. But more likely, and it it fits better the New Testament picture, this is a double yoke. One animal's on one side, one animal's on the other side. And in those days, it was a common practice to train a new animal, a young animal, which is untrained, to do the work by yoking it up with an animal which was much larger, much stronger, and well-trained. And as the young animal was in that yoke, tied to the old one, he began to learn from the first animal, from the first ox. Jesus comes and says this, take my yoke upon you. I think that's important for us because one thing, Jesus makes demands on us. There's no question about that. They are not demands which enable us to earn salvation or earn a position with God, but to be what God wants us to be is going to take some work, and we have to agree to that work being done if it's going to if we're going to experience it. But Jesus Christ will never put on you a burden that he hasn't first borne. He never asks us to go where he hasn't first gone. It's one of those things I learned early on in my ministry that I cannot take people any place where I'm not willing to go. I cannot train people to do what I won't do. 
Now, the Lord, in order to, to give us that experience, says, Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my yoke on you. And I want you to learn from me. I want you to accept that. You have to do it. You have to put it on. He doesn't put it on you. You have to put it on. You have to accept this. Take my yoke and then learn from me. And he says, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. Now, that is one of the most, to me, amazing statements, and particularly the second part of it. And it's a confusing statement. It was for me for a long time. Because my view of, particularly as humility, was... Humility was pretending I could I was less a person than other people. When I started to think that I could run faster, I could do better on a test than somebody else, that was pride. And I didn't want to have pride. I was taught to, to have a humble heart. Now, I thought about that, and, and you think about Jesus. Now, here is a man who could speak to a storm, and it stopped. That's amazing. Here's a man who could take a little bit of food and start breaking it into pieces and feed thousands of people with one meal. Here's a man who, when he was confronted with demonic powers trying to step, cause him to step aside, was able to speak to them, and they had to do what he told them to do. He was in complete control. Here's a man who had the capacity to raise the dead. He had authority over life and death. Here was a man who, when he confronted his enemies, always won every argument. He confounded every person who ever tried to oppose him intellectually. How can it be that we could call him humble? How could that man be known as humble? That was a big question to me. And so I began to look at that and then to find out what is the essence of humility? What is the essence of humility? And it has nothing to do with capacity. It has everything to do with what you do with your capacity. So I want to look at another passage, well-known passage also, but I want to look at it because it describes the humility. In what sense was Jesus Christ humble? Well, here's what it says. And this is in Philippians chapter 2. And he tells us this. He says, this is part of that, learn from me, all right? Learn from me because I'm meek and lowly of heart. And so Paul speaks to the church at Philippi and says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What he is going to describe here is the attitude of humility. I am to have that attitude of humility within me. All right? And this is what it says. Who, although he existed in the form of God. And we don't have a lot of time here, so I'm not going to spend time with it. It means that he was God. He is God. He continues to be God. That's who he was. He's the one who created all things, and they were all made by him and for him. He lived in the realm of heaven, and every glimpse we get into heaven indicates that in that place, all of the creatures that are created are oriented around the one who is the creator all giving glory to Him, all loving Him, all serving Him. There is nothing which is withheld from that person. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He had that before. He has it now. He's in heaven, who although He existed in the form of God. And this is this, that although He did that, 
he didn't think of that as being something to hold on to. Something to cherish, to protect. And it tells us what he did. He emptied himself and took on the form of the servant and was made like men. The important point in that is that he did this. He took on the form of a servant. He became, he always was, but he took on an outward form which enabled us to see the heart of God, the servant heart of God. We say that God is love. And I don't know what that means to you, but here is part of it that, and a big part of it, that the heart of God is a servant heart. The eternal God who made all things is in his heart a servant because when he took on the form of the servant, he's not taking on something other than what God is because we're told that if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus in action, he said, you've seen the Father, you've seen God in action. Right? And when he comes as a servant to this earth, I want to make a couple quick notes about that. He didn't come here with anything. He was not an important person on this earth by his birth. He came from a little town, which was a boondocks town as far as the Israelis were concerned. And Israel was a secondary part of the Roman Empire, very hated part of the Roman Empire. His family was not wealthy. He was not connected to anybody important. He lived his whole life as a despised man because of his birth. He has, a, he has nothing in a sense, going for him. And that's helpful for us because there's nobody that has less than him. If you're alive, you can come and you can come alongside of him and he knows what it is to be at the very bottom of society, to be despised, to be ridiculed, to be bullied, if you would, in a sense, by the, the people around him. And that's the expression, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, he does that because it was his determination that my need of salvation and your need of salvation, my need to have my sins removed so that I could enter into the purpose for which I was created, was so much more important than his own experience that he gave it up and became a servant on this earth. That is the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see, when, when he says, take my yoke, take my yoke, we're going to find out that that is the character of the Lord himself. That is what he did as he came to this earth. If I am going to be yoked to him, I am going to become a servant. And I am going to spend my life for the sake of other people around me instead of for myself. And he tells us this, my yoke is easy. That's an easy yoke to bear. It's actually, it's an easy way to live. My burden is light. There is a burden in this earth, but it is light. Because that's what I was created to be because I was made in the image of God. Now, the question comes, will I take it? Will I take it? 
And next week what we're going to talk about is some of the details that Jesus puts out. What is it? And that's where we get to that matter of surrender. Because as soon as that offer is made to us and the tremendous possibilities in front of us, interestingly, from our hearts, a cry goes up, no way. We back off and don't want to go forward. A conflict develops. And that conflict could make us, to use the picture of the illustration we had before, cower to the back of our little cell and sit there and hope that our prison cell will someday fulfill our biggest dreams while the door is opened to the real experience of life. What makes great promise to Have you ever taken that yoke? Have you ever come to the Lord and said, you know what? I am ready. I am at a point where I am ready to let you do in my life whatever you want to do with it. To change it so that I can be like you on this earth and experience the life that you promised I could have. By the grace of God, the opportunity has been provided. Now, you need to, I need to surrender. Stop the warfare and enter into that experience. Let's pray. Father, we're coming to give you thanks that we have the great opportunity to know you. And we're asking you to bring us close for your praise and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Totally His Running the Race. I trust you are encouraged as you seek to grow in your relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd like to listen to more messages that will be an encouragement in your walk with the Lord, go to the school's website, www.eibibleschool.org, and click on the Resources tab that's at the top of the page, and then you can select the Audio Library in the drop-down. Training students to develop a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ that expresses itself in a life devoted to the advancement of God's kingdom is why EI School of Biblical Training exists. We offer a two-year unaccredited associate's degree where students attend classes, hear the Word of God taught, study the Word, and are encouraged to develop their relationship with the Lord. Our classes are designed to be both intellectually challenging and heart-searching. Some stay on for a third year and work towards getting a bachelor's degree. If you'd like to find out more about the school, visit our website, www.eibibleschool.org. Again, that's www.eibibleschool.org.